0: You ever Are you listening? Welcome to Startup DNA. I'm your host, Martin Lindong, and I know firsthand how hard and frustrating it can be to build a successful business. In this podcast, I interview the world's leading entrepreneurs and investors on how to turn a business idea into a highly profitable market leader. Oh, If you are interested in raising venture capital, then get my free startup fundraising tips at roadtofunding.com. Let's get started to uncover the secrets to building great businesses. If you look at many startups, they are somehow innovative when they start out. And then at some point they turn boring and unimaginative. And those dinosaurs, as I call them, will die out or be eaten alive by the competition. Therefore, I'll be talking to Felix Reinshagen, who co-founded Navis, an innovative indoor mapping company that is currently disrupting lots of boring industries and is growing like crazy. Hi, Felix. Welcome. Hi, Martin. Thanks for having me. Great. Uh, Felix, please describe a little bit more in detail. What customer pain points is Navis trying to solve better than any other solution? How do you solve those customer pain points and how your business model works?
1: So to explain what we are doing, I'm always coming back to the analogy to the kind of real digital revolution that happened to all outdoor industries. Every process that's happening under the open air in the Western world today is tied to the digital fabric of GPS and maps. For example, looking at parcel delivery. In Munich, Amazon can now deliver parcels within one hour, only 15 years ago, if you ordered something in the famous um, Otto catalog, Mm -hmm. it, it took easily two weeks until the good finally arrived at your door. And the difference between two weeks and one hour is not that the kind of delivery car drives faster in Munich today, rather contrary, due to kind of increased traffic. It's because the whole process from ordering to logistics to delivery is optimized digitally. And the delivery car knows exactly where to expect traffic. Delivery guy knows exactly in which backyard he has to ring the bell. So everything has been optimized based on a fully digital environment. And if you look into the indoor world, we found that all this is missing. That um, companies that try to optimize their processes indoors are still working on old-fashioned printed-out 2D floor plans. And that was the founding idea of Navis bringing This digital revolution indoors and looking at the huge difference between GDP-created outdoors and GDP-created indoors, only a very small fraction of our GDP today is created in the outdoor world. Like a little bit of logistics that we just covered, mobility services, where you see the same digital revolution has taken place and Uber completely disrupted the market based on the fact that every driver and customer has GPS and maps. While 90% of our um, GDP is created indoors in factories, in hospitals, in malls, in airports or train stations, and and all this um, hasn't been digitized. And huge efficiency gains and effectiveness gains are to be gained there. So that was the founding idea. And what we are doing is we developed a technology like GPS and maps to address this pain point, to address the need for a fully digital environment and a reliable positioning information, because Indoors GPS signals can't be received and you need a different level of precision of mapping data. Mm. Of course, you know, your mapping satellites can't look um, into buildings either. So we had to build everything from scratch and we uh, built our own mapping technology that actually works indoors. So like a very much miniaturized Google Street View car. Everyone knows these cars with all their cameras and lasers on top that have mapped all our streets. We built a much smaller version of that that we call our trolley that can map indoor environments pretty much in real time and at 10 to 100 fold the speed of traditional scanning technologies. And and then we built our whole um, backend that allows to host the digital building in the web, in the cloud, so that everyone just using a browser can access that and that there is no need anymore for these printed out 2D floor plans. And this digital building in the web, of course, is a much more detailed and richer digital environment. And it allows a multitude of additional use cases, and you can access it in a browser. You don't need to physically go somewhere and pick the plan up. So, that as well um, opens up a huge new playing ground of process automation and optimization. Cool. And then the third thing is we built a computer vision uh, based um, navigation technology for the indoors. You don't need to rely on GPS signals in buildings anymore. And based on these three elements, uh, we have given our customers a huge new set of digital tools at hand. To pretty much digitize every process in a building, like every outdoor process has been digitized, from indoor logistics to repair and maintenance, monitoring of big construction sites. You know, think about the Germany's famous messed up construction site, the Berlin Airport or Stuttgart <laughs> 21, the Philharmonie in Hamburg, and that have all kind of suffered heavily from missing documentation and project supervision um, in, in construction. That are all pain points that we can address with our technology. And the business model behind that we have built as a subscription model from the scratch. So here as well, trying to innovate and giving people something at hand that immediately covers the full stack. So hardware, software and services all bundled together. The customer can kind of pick the best elements from the hardware side, the software side and the service side and pays us a monthly subscription fee and then has kind of vast degrees of freedom to build their own process automation based on these technology building blocks that we provide to them.
0: Mm-hmm. If I look at this outdoor world that you described, yeah, and I clearly see how some metrics have been improved to customers, like from having a package delivered uh, like in two weeks to having it delivered in some hours. Can you give us some ex- specific examples how the Navis solution has improved some business metrics?
1: Mm-hmm. So let's, for example, look at, Two examples from the um, industrial world. So this uh, becomes more, more part of what we are calling industry 4.0. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, even large factory environments, very much automated factory environments, are hardly kind of available as up-to-date digital models today. So you know, if you've got a large automotive factory, for example, it was hardly possible in the past to regularly create an up-to-date, very detailed digital twin of that environment because it took so long and these factories are all undergoing continuous improvement. Mm-hmm. So just to give you an example in terms of numbers to scan a large scale automotive factory, one of kind of these famous German factories that produce a thousand cars every day, mm-hmm. it took 6 to 9 months to scan everything. And once you had scanned everything, the stuff that you scanned at the beginning had already usually changed so much that the data was pretty much useless. Right. We've been able to reduce the scanning time to 2 days from six to nine months to two days. So now it can be done within one maintenance weekend. So that's just, you know, one of, the, one of the numbers. And then if you, for example, look at repair and maintenance effort, around 30% of repair and maintenance has to be redone. So it's complete waste because when the repair and maintenance person appears at the factory site, for example, to fix a certain robot, they find out that the environment is very different from what they expected and what was in their plans. So, for example, they expected a robot of a certain type or they expected the robot would be accessible. But in reality, it's a robot of a different type because it has been changed over time or the robot is not accessible at all. So they have to go back to their cars, you know, drive back to their maintenance center, come back the next day. So all these hours have been complete um, complete waste. Now, if you've got an up-to-date and easily accessible digital model of that factory that really reflects the as-is situation in the factory, you. Just send the repair and maintenance person a link to that position in the factory. The guy can check out the whole environment and context of where he has to carry out the repair and maintenance work up front. And you can avoid the 30% of wasted approaches that have to be redone completely. They're just two examples from industrial environments on um, the huge savings that you can actually achieve um, achieve both in creating the data as well as in later using it.
0: Okay, Okay, cool stuff. Let's go back in time a little. Tell me, what was it like to go from idea to MVP? Can you shine some light on how the process went and provide some super tangible real life examples?
1: Yeah. So that was an extremely painful process. (laughs) And to some extent, the classic MVP idea, which we very much like and try to stick to in everything we are building now, was very hard to implement for us in the beginning because our original idea was to build an indoor navigation system, like the GPS for indoors, mm-hmm. and to build a system that mirrors the approach of Mother Nature that doesn't require any beacons that emitters signals, and, and then you triangulate from there with a the receiver in your smartphone, something like that. But we wanted to build something that doesn't require all of this infrastructure, expensive infrastructure to be installed. And we thought Mother Nature has perfectly solved this problem by applying the sense of vision to the problem of navigation. Mm-hmm. So that's what we are doing every day. We memorize a building when we're seeing it first time. At first time, we might need to ask people or read floor plans, and then we start memorizing the building. And once it's memorized, our sense of vision can match what we see against this memorized model, and we can perfectly find our way around, even in large and complex environments. So that was the idea, and that was meant to be our MVP, a app on the smartphone that uses the camera to localize you in the building. So... Then we found out that this was actually a very bad MVP because it requires another fundamental new technology to actually work, which is a mapping technology. And we tried out some existing mapping technologies and found they all to be by far too slow and expensive for our navigation app to work at reasonable cost. So we had to stop with our navigation app at some point and uh, go back and develop a mapping technology for the indoors. So we applied a lot of technology from the robotics and what is now being built into self-driving cars and uh, built our trolley, which is a little cart equipped with cameras and laser scanners. And that actually became our MVP. And You can imagine if you already try to build a very, very complex and technology-heavy MVP like um, a navigation app, and then you find that Mm -hmm. you have to pretty much stop with that and go back to another super complex technology from robotics and build something entirely new here. That was a process that would have nearly killed us. Um, of course, we had the advantage of many, many years of fundamental research that we could, could build up on that had happened first in Stanford and then at the uh, Technical University in Munich. But still, this kind of large, it was not really a pivot because at the end we are now, of course, coming back to our navigation app um, and we can heavily uh, build up on all the years of research and building there now However, switching focus so strong from um, uh, first offering a um, navigation app Mm -hmm. and then building pretty much a hardware solution, kind of a robot that you push through buildings um, to scan everything and the whole post-processing data chain, that was quite an experience. And um, we were really not equipped to build a piece of hardware. (laughs) Of course, in the team, we had a couple of people that were kind of heavily into robotics and data processing and electrical engineering but much more coming from the software side and building a hardware product is really um, an animal of its own. And and that was a hard piece of work and by far the hardest thing we had to accomplish to get Navas running as a company.
0: Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing here is that many entrepreneurs that are starting out, they are really happy if they have built an easy MVP and can validate their core assumptions. In your case, it was not the case. At least you found out, oh, we need to dig in much, much deeper in order to provide this kind of technology. And Absolutely, yeah. Right? But the cool stuff in your case is once you've got this, you have some kind of really great market entry
1: barriers, right? Which others don't have. Absolutely, yes. And that is still very, very visible on the market. Like, Had we known what it takes, most likely we had not dared to start. Right because we had indeed to dig much, much deeper than we initially hoped we we would have to. On the other hand, we hardly made it, but the fact that we now have um, an own full technology stack, including a very complex piece of robotics and hardware and a large software stack on top, first gives our customers a much richer set of capabilities and technology building blocks for digitizing their buildings. And of course, it creates huge entry barriers. And um, so far, and we are now two and a half years in the market with our product, like really after release, no other company has been able to build something comparable. Yeah. So
0: from my point of view, innovation is a very, very big buzz terminology. Yeah? What is innovation for you and what role does it play for Navis?
1: So for us, innovation, of course, is really at the core of what we are doing. But innovation is usually not something that you think you want to do. So let's do something super innovative, uh, whatever it is. It is more a methodology that you apply Mm -hmm. to build against a target, a objective that you have in mind. And we had clearly a very simple objective in mind. We wanted to build something like the TomTom in your car for the indoors. Mm -hmm. And it didn't sound like such a big thing. Because usually you think it should be much harder outdoors where the environment is so vast compared to the much smaller environment indoors. But on the way, we found out that it's actually much, much harder because the infrastructure of GPS is so scalable, you know. Of course, it's difficult to bring these 30 satellites into the orbit, but then you can provide a positioning, a blue dot information on every single point on Earth. While For the building, you have to install something in every single room. And if you want to avoid that, You have to go down a completely different road. Um, And as image processing and image recognition had made so much progress, we thought this road can be approached now. And that was absolutely correct. You know, we solved it that way. But only because the technology is accessible and has uh, come into existence in general. If you want to solve a very specific problem, (laughs) you find out that there are so many gaps still out there. And that is where the real innovation happens. You know, you take a lot of things that are already out there the smartphone technology that had been built to a certain point like miniaturization of cameras so that they were available at a certain quality in every single phone the whole imagery cognition technology but it needed to be combined with a complex streaming thing Mm -hmm. Um, so you take a lot of things and build small things in between to combine these building blocks you know always um, compare that to the iphone right all the building blocks were still there you know you had these big touch screens, um, you had to touch technology, you could build phones um, at that size and speed, you could build an operating system, um, you could actually build an icon-based uh, operating system. So you had the capabilities of doing mobile web, but the real innovation was tying all these things together in a product that would really work. And that is what we did as well. We took a lot of technology building blocks that were already out there. We invented a few on top, but mainly, it was kind of combining a lot of stuff that was out there and working in a very targeted way towards a goal that didn't sound that complicated in the beginning. <laughs> um, but that was much, much harder to solve engineering-wise and, and innovation-wise at the end.
0: Right. I mean, you can s- simplify that and just we need to connect the, the dots by experimentation. For example, when I look at innovation, yeah, I perceive it as a system that enables people to experiment on improving either the core processes and thereby gain maybe a 10% return a year by a step-by-step process or take really, really big risk with potentially 10x returns in five to seven years or so. And now the question would be, how do you make sure that people at Navis take the right risks? So not taking the stupid risks, but also not foregoing high risks with extreme return potential in the medium and long
1: term. Yeah, I would absolutely count us into the second category. It was extremely high risk. I remember that was back in 2007 when Georg, who is one of the co-founders and our CTO, and the, the person who had the original idea to do something like that, pitched his idea of building a indoor navigation system as part of his PhD project to me while we were on a sailing trip. I was strongly advising him not to do that because mm-hmm. I regarded that as a by far too high risk project for a phd thesis usually you do something or you are advised to pick something for your phd thesis that is almost solved you know using or applying a somehow known algorithm or procedure to a new field where you are very pretty sure it's going to work and this was something that i thought would be really cool to have but very very unlikely to be solvable within the realm of phd thesis so The good thing is he found a rather risk-free environment to do that. So he supervised that at Stanford, strongly supported him and um, advised him um, to go into that direction. And then he found a chair, a professor here in Munich, who was a person he as well knew from his time at Stanford, who was as well very generous in offering him a PhD position without any funding at that point in time. So he was actually in an environment where he felt he could take that risk. And then very early on, he could make some amazing breakthroughs, working with, at that time, the very first Google Street View uh, database. The, the first Google Street View recordings were done in San Francisco. And that image database was actually the foundation of trying to develop a image-based positioning technology. Um, so a lot of things um, had to come together, but the key was there was an environment where people trusted in, um, in you know, a person taking this kind of risk. And then a couple of very visible breakthroughs that brought funding into the project more on a research level at that point in time compared to a kind of company level. I think no one would have ever funded a company based on that back in 2008, 2009. Yeah. But he was able to build a whole team around that. And he managed the team very well in not only doing research in, in terms of papers, but from the beginning on trying to build something tangible,
0: nice.
1: software and lab hardware. So and, and that as well was going very well. And when we rediscussed the whole topic then in early 2012, it really felt like things would be coming together. Um, it was still a very, very long shot. And we were at that point in time still thinking that we would be building a inner navigation app and that the scanning technology would rather be something that we would be using in the background. But actually, we were all very lucky that some of the leading universities in the world were providing a person who was that visionary an environment where he could just start working on on these topics that really sounded like moonshots 10 years back. And then when the time was really right and you could see things coming together, we all made that leap of faith and spin that off into a company in 2013.
0: Yeah, from my point of view, science should be about taking risks, because if you don't take risks, you don't have a knowledge gain. And uh, just going for the safe route, yeah, will take you the title PhD and thereby getting you maybe then a job at McKinsey or something like that. Yeah? Yes. But there is no gain for the scientific society. Okay. How do you nurture actually an innovation culture and turn your employees in, into experiment-driven scientists that optimize things that matter?
1: I think it's kind of mainly a matter of first picking the right people that have a initial drive and willingness to do that. I think much, much more it's providing them the right environment. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you know, there are some people that are naturally more risk takers than others that are more risk averse. But I think this is kind of much more a question of the right environment, the right incentives and processes than of personal preferences. And by the way, there's a very good piece of research I recently read that that everyone is kind of praising entrepreneurs for being these crazy risk takers. And if you look at the numbers, you see that most of these people actually grow up in environments that provide awesome safety nets in terms of kind of, right. kind of they really come with a great education and the right, right personal background and parental environment where they really feel like they can afford to take that risk early in their careers. Right. And if they fail, you know they will still have all options available to them. It's very seldomly that you know people take this kind of risk if they feel they don't have the safety net and if there's other safer options available to them. That actually rarely happens. So it is very much about providing the right context, environment. So that's kind of the first thing: really encouraging people, telling them that we have and provide a culture of failure. That we absolutely know that of the things we try, a certain percentage is definitely gonna fail, and that. You know, that is not in some to some extent limiting the career, but that we rather cherish the systematic approach. Um, they took uh, to a new problem, kind of the way they kind of tried out different things and the way they reached out to the more senior people in the company for support and you know, trying to find a, a way through that problem. So and one of the things we do for that is we put extensive emphasis on problem solving in our interview process. And we are, of course, not to that extent doing the classic problem solving that, you know, from consulting. Even so, we did steal uh, with pride some of the methodology <laughs> from there. But we are much more focusing on kind of scientific and um, engineering problem solving. But a large part of our interview process is around problem solving and, you know, the way people break down larger problems in, in small pieces, how they can describe, how they would approach then the single parts with tests and hypotheses and their their validation or their dismission. So that's part of our interview process. And then, uh, of course, the whole way you break down um, your your whole product management and product development uh, process um, into milestones, you have to bring in a good mixture of things that you know you can solve and something that are really kind of big gambles where you absolutely don't know if you will be able to solve them. Of course, if the the company grows, you know, there is some stuff that you just need to get done. Right. And then there are some big bets that you are taking. And um, as well, you know, usually all your engineers want to work on the bets. Now, because that (laughs) are the really, really interesting and cool scientific problems. So it's usually rather the other way around that you have to talk people into um, and convince them of the fact that everyone has to do some of the groundwork and the grinding as well. That it's not only kind of the glamour of developing the fancy new algorithms. It is as well kind of the hard engineering work in improving stuff and doing the third and fourth cycle of improvement on stuff that already works. So you have to find a good mixture. And and then you really see like the whole process from kind of picking and and already in the interviewing process, applying the right methodology to identify the right people, of providing the right roadmap that provides a good mixture, um, the right coaching and and, and team culture where people support each other in, in the problem solving and discovery process kind of then to the deployment of the innovation in a rapid pace in your products. So it's kind of really the whole life cycle from hiring people to to the deployment of a product and the product management part that are involved.
0: Mm -hmm. I totally
1: understand that first you select the right people who have a
0: bias for innovation, and then you're trying to design the product roadmap so that you have a good mixture of low-risk products and high-risk product initiatives. But what is the precise methodology that you are using to fill and manage the innovation
1: pipeline? So that is a little bit of the magic. So unfortunately, this is not something that you can do entirely by scientific means. It first requires some people that have a very, very deep insight, both in the very broad field of underlying technologies in your space that you can pick from. Because you're rarely building, and that's what we discussed in the beginning, something entirely from scratch. You -hmm. You couldn't build kind of the whole stack of robotics or computer vision to solve what we need to solve if there wouldn't be a vast and extensive body of knowledge and, and even code out there. So that's kind of the first thing. You really need a couple of people who know that body of knowledge, not only kind of in a small area, but in a very broad area very well. And we are very lucky that we have these kind of people it's kind of mainly our CTO who is supervising that whole process mm-hmm. and that's kind of very very unique and special strength that you need to bring and then you need to combine that on the other hand with a very deep insight as well on what your customers needs really are and that was something that we didn't have in the beginning and it was kind of a little bit of a lucky shot that we landed because our topic was a pure technology push you know we yeah, right. we had this idea that the technology would be somehow useful but with very little concrete idea where it would be useful. Right. So in the beginning, it was pretty much okay to only have this kind of broad technology basis to pick from. And a couple of the things that really made the success possible was good intuition from which technologies to pick from. Just give you one example. And very early on, we had to make a decision what kind of data formats we want to build up on. And we decided for panoramic images and point clouds. That's kind of already pretty deep tech, but we could have picked other data formats as well. You know, we could have tried to immediately create a mesh model, textured mesh, you not know, the three D format that you know from computer games. And we had a very heated debate from that. And very, very luckily, you know, without entirely knowing how the market turned out, we decided to go for panoramic images and point clouds instead of textured uh, meshes because textured meshes are still not possible today, and no company. Even companies who are entirely focused on that have been able to produce something of reasonable good quality there automatically, while we are able to fully automatically create panoramic images and point clouds. So, if we have had betted on being able to create textured meshes, we would just not be existing anymore. Right. And there you see that innovation is also a little bit part of a luck. Absolutely. And of course, there were good probabilities and a very deep knowledge of you know, the underlying technologies that um, you would need to build the one thing or the other thing. But at the end, everyone who tells you that there wasn't a significant portion of uncertainty in there, and uncertainty means you can't know precisely. You have to guess. <laughs> you have to bet to a certain extent, which means there's always a good fraction um, of luck in there. And you absolutely can't underestimate that. And even with a great team and a great idea, you might easily not make it because you are actually missing that quantum of luck that you absolutely need.
0: Right. Imagine one of your employees comes to you and says, Felix, I've got this awesome idea. Let's do this. What do you say and what, based on your own experience, do other executives from not-so-innovative companies say that hinders their innovation pipeline?
1: So kind of the first thing is, in general, we absolutely encourage people to do exactly this. And it's always hard to balance because many times you still have to say no. Because otherwise, every person, you know, if you have a company with a lot of very innovative people, will come to you every day with some crazy ideas. And it's just impossible. You just don't have the bandwidth and you will entirely use your focus if you give the green light to implement and start working on each of these ideas. It's just not possible. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, you need to be very careful not to discourage the people. Because if someone comes to you five times with a, very cool and innovative idea, and you turn that person down five times, it's very unlikely that that person's going to come a sixth time. I think the main point is creating a good sense of where you ask people to innovate and in which specific area we are looking for ideas so that people don't come with entirely odd and weird ideas that might be very cool, but that would totally derail and defocus the team. Yeah. And that is as well part of kind of the core tasks of the leadership team providing a good vision of where you want to go. And, you know, we formulated a very clear vision for the company to go overall, but a very, very broad vision. And then um, for our three product roles, we call it reality capture, where it's about the whole mapping technology, the digital building in the cloud, where it's about the whole data storage, streaming, data enrichment. And for the inner navigation part, we formulated individual product visions, visions that actually look five to 10 years in the future. And in general, the idea is, You know, people know if they can contribute and come up with ideas that are real shortcuts into that future, that is usually something that we then can pick up and where they then can work against compared to stuff that is not contributing to that product vision. So that's how we try to guide people a little bit in their own innovation and ideation process and and still maintain the focus while at the same time encourage innovation. Mm
0: And from your experience, what do you think, what hinders other not-so-innovative corporate executives?
1: So I think in many large corporate environments, the first problem is that people are tied to very small boxes in a very large machine that they have actually no idea um, of where the whole thing is actually kind of moving to. And if you feel that you are only kind of a very small machine and that you are not allowed to see the whole ship, It is very, very difficult to innovate. And and then usually, you know, you can only come up with an innovation on that very, very small part of the machinery. But usually the real innovation happens when you start to develop overview, when you see context and connection between different things. That's what we talked about in the beginning. Usually it's about connecting dots that are not obviously kind of connectable at all for other people. Because perhaps they didn't didn't even know that these dots would, would be existing. So it is very important that you regularly provide your team a larger picture, you know, how things actually play together and that they don't put them to too small of a box and, and, and keep them there, that, but that you allow them, you know, to move around a little bit and learn about kind of different parts of, um, of the thing. That's kind of where the innovation is coming from. And if you're restricting people um, to only function in that small box, that's another thing. You know, usually in a large enterprise, there is a very bad risk-reward uh, setting that has been created over time. Usually, you are not really rewarded for uh, taking a risk because, you know, to keep the super large machinery running, you want all the small kind of boxes and pieces to run uh, flawlessly. So you absolutely don't encourage people to do something that might stop their little box from, from working flawlessly. Yeah. And that means in terms of the risk profile that you provide, if you take a risk and it doesn't work out, you're usually punished hard kind of mid-level manager that might even uh, mean that that the person might immediately be fired right so you know if you think on the other hand what are you gaining from delivering a big innovation usually very little you know perhaps you are promoted one rank um, but very often you know then you are the other colleagues on the same level are envious and Usually, you make a much easier career if you just keep your head down, um, You know, do your work, just try to be a little bit more efficient in your in delivering your results than everyone else, and that's kind of the easiest way up the career ladder. You have a risk-reward setting like that, where risk-taking and then failure is punished that hard, and taking a risk and winning only gives you that little reward. Yeah, why should you take a risk? And, and, and of course, kind of the thinking then uh, moves down the whole pyramid And in an environment like that you must not be surprised that no one is innovative.
0: Totally agree with you.
1: And I've seen this from my personal experience several times. uh... Oh, me too. Yeah, before I founded Novice, as you know, I was with a big consulting company for many, many years, and I worked for many big corporates, and most of them don't have any innovation culture due to exactly these mechanisms described. So,
0: for example, one approach that I personally like, and it's... It's somehow in alignment with your view, I think, is if the management or the founders just determine what are our innovation areas and for each innovation area say, okay, those are the top two, three things that we want to improve based on some metrics uh, we want to get. Faster at the delivery, for example, from two hours to fifty minutes, whatsoever. Yeah, and then giving other people in the company or maybe even externals the opportunity to come with some ideas and say, "Okay, this is my idea, and I would be doing this and this, and this might improve this kind of metric in this innovation area by this." And then you can prioritize and say, "Okay, yeah, we are we are fine with spending this time of resources, time, money, whatsoever, on this initiative because we believe." Uh, with this kind of risk return profile, that this might be a great investment.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like making ideas or areas of improvement visible to more people is definitely helpful and encourage other people to lean in on these kind of ideas and really incentivize um, contributing to the ideation process. On the other hand, I think you as well absolutely need deep expertise in that area and encouraging people to constantly learn and extend their knowledge in that area of engineering and, you know, extend that knowledge far beyond that very small box they are sitting in, that is another key element. Because only in going kind of very, very deep on one very, very small part of the technology stack that is extremely helpful. And I would recommend everyone to develop this kind of spike. But if you not at the same time, um, develop a certain broadness it will be very difficult to innovate as well. So finding a good mixture in, you know, how do you develop and and educate the team is one of the other key elements. So
0: you briefly talked about how innovation is hindered in larger corporates, and we talked about the reasons about that. So what are you at Navis actually doing in order to encourage larger risk-taking that does not affect promotions and compensations and this risk-reward profile negatively?
1: So kind of the first thing is in engineer's we in general don't do a very large uh, variable compensation or not, no variable compensation at all. It's rather that it's part of the normal job description of people to work on a good mixture of kind of really new and innovative topics compared to what we discussed in the beginning, like yeah. <laughs> heads down, you know, uh, engineering work on um, fixing bugs and, and, and doing the kind of these small improvement cycles. And rather describing it as part of their, of a very risk-free, still kind of very challenging, intellectually challenging and stimulating uh, work environment. So I mean, if you put huge pressure on a person and says you need to come up with this or that innovation, and you need to do this and that, I think that is generally not something that works well in an engineering environment. It is rather helping people with good methodology, how to think out of the box, how to think creatively, giving them enough kind of freedom to develop and learn, pick up new technologies you know, move them from time to time from one topic to the other so that they are not too much narrowed down in a certain box. And, and then, of course, you know, a good mixture of experience and young people. So a couple of, you know, seasoned engineers that have already been part of some technology breakthroughs um, that, you know, have a good sense of the methodology and the team spirit that you need and some very young people, hungry people, right, of uni- university That bring the very newest um, mathematical and theoretical background that I think um, are the aspects that we are looking to build in in our engineering teams.
0: Mm -hmm. Lots of corporates think they can be innovative just by hiring a head of innovation, setting up an innovation lab, and that's it. What's your take on that?
1: Yeah, that is, of course, very naive. Because innovation usually never comes out of some central innovation hub but innovation is always tied to being very very deep in one very specific area of engineering so you know if you are already very good and deep at building cars or certain aspects of cars and then think out of the box and combine that with some new knowledge from software or from kind of design from from other areas then something great comes out of that but if you are sitting in a central innovation hub and you don't really know all the detailed whereabouts of a certain uh, product area and technology area, I think it's pretty much impossible to come up with something really innovative. Then you are talking about innovation. Perhaps you are talking about some, in general, not wrong methodology of innovation, but you are still very, very far away from where the real innovation happens.
0: Yeah. And what do you think, how would a job description of, for example, a head of innovation would need to be changed? In order to really make it happen, because I totally understand that he doesn't have the deep technology knowledge that is needed to really execute on innovation. But maybe he could, I don't know, transmit some kind of tools, education processes whatsoever and align different initiatives and make this kind of innovation roadmap and then getting all the technology leaders on board so that the technologies execute innovation and that they are allowed to be innovative. But actually, it's not the head of
1: innovation who is doing it. He's only orchestrating it. Yeah, I actually think that this is the task of the CEO and the CTO. Mm -hmm. Because the CEO really is the person who needs to provide the people and mindset environment. And the CTO really needs to be the person who brings exactly that super, super deep technology knowledge. Um, and, And, you know, in an automotive company, it might be the head of engineering, because they usually don't have a kind of classic CTO. But I think it needs to be coming from that person who is really has made his career through knowing that technology um, to the deepest possible extent. And then, you know, from like the CEO level, you need to provide the right environment and mindset that um, innovation can really happen. Um, coming back to the to the thing that we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. I have difficulties seeing what additional value a pure innovation person who, you know, on the one hand, doesn't bring the very, very deep insight into that specific industry, vertical product development that a CTO a head of engineering can bring, and who doesn't have the authority of the CEO to make sure that you know you set the right mindset, in general, have the right promotion principles, um, and so on in place. Perhaps this can be um, rather a additional function as you know, in the COO environment or in the people environment to make sure that you stick to some of the modern and and well-documented principles, both in your people processes as well as in your corporate processes. So, you know, as additional parts of a COO organization or a people organization, um, but I would always make sure that like the the CTO and, and CEO are the main drivers of this. If you expect that you establish a separate innovation head and through this, suddenly you know, the whole environment and the company is uh, is, is turning to the better in terms of uh, the innovation culture, this is very naive. Because um, if at the same time, the way the CTO or the head of engineering manages the whole engineering process, and that's kind of reporting to him. And the CEO sets kind of the, the overall framework in the company. It's never going to work out.
0: Yeah. So from what I've seen is that lots of head of innovations or lab managers whatsoever are like teethless tigers. Absolutely. Sometimes I think that the REACH breakthrough innovation can't be really managed because people tend to focus on evolutionary improvements, think conversion rate optimization or process optimization, while not thinking about what alternative conclusions and business opportunities can be derived from such structured experiments that have gone wrong. Think about the invention of penicillin, the antibiotics, right? It was just uncovered by mistake. But the innovative thing was by thinking about other potential applications that might benefit from this failed experiment. And this is how breakthrough innovation is often done, at least from my point of view. How do you make sure that people at NAVIS are thinking about the wider consequences of faulty experiments?
1: I like the analogy because for a large extent, you know, we share exactly that story. You know, we tried to build this inner navigation app and it actually failed. It was not possible to do that because, you know, we actually lacked a big thing and then we built our scanning technology. And it was actually only meant to power our inner navigation. But then we found that this is by far kind of a too small application area. And by now, um, we see the mapping business as the by far more and most important part of our business because a map is actually more important um, than the capability of knowing where you are on that map. The map is useful in itself, while knowing where you are is only useful if it's kind of tied to some kind of map. So we we went through exactly that same cycle, you know. We had the certain idea that we want to do one thing, the inner navigation. And we found that we need to build a scanning technology. And now we see that the technology built to solve that very specific problem has actually a much, much broader and different application area. And 90% of um, what we are doing in terms of mapping has nothing to do with navigation, but with kind of documentation and remote access and virtual reality and of this whole kind of digital twin uh, thinking of kind of factory improvement or process line optimization so yes you know you have to if you kind of work boldly with new technologies and if you are creative you know where these new technologies can be applied you might actually easily come across a much much more interesting thing than you initially had in mind and and what we're doing now bringing digital to the indoors is a much much broader and much much more powerful thing compared to our initial idea um, of building a TomTom for the indoors. Because the thing that I see
0: is lots of managers, like corporate managers, they are very narrow-minded because they have a specific worldview that has been, I don't know, developed over the last 15, 20 years whatsoever. And they can only view the world with this kind of lens. With entrepreneurs, it's a little bit different, but still for very many of them, they are still uh, only looking from through one type of lens or so. So uh, they can only look through the closer consequences of their faulty expense. For example, if you're talking to somebody who is maybe, I don't know, a marketing-driven founder or so, he always thinks in conversion rate optimization and, and, and sales funnel, marketing funnel thing. Yeah. So if you then to talk to him about some other thing which might be technology-related or so, he still only can view it through the conversion rate optimization funnel logic. So how do you make sure that at Navis uh, that you encourage and enable people to see and think through those wider consequences of faulty experiments?
1: Yeah, that's kind of, um, that, it's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. And um, if you haven't already picked up some of that during your education, I think that in a good um, engineering or of you know, in general, mint education, as we say now in Germany, that you are better prepared for this kind of thinking compared to in a classic business education. Because these methodologies of, you know, setting out an experiment, building a hypothesis, yeah. testing for that hypothesis, and then, you know, going through another process of ideation, for example, as it happens in physics, you know, where people build these weird models and concepts and ideas of, um, you know, how a certain physical process or you know underlying particles might actually uh, look like and then you know kind of tested with creative experiments is right. i think much closer to the way innovation happens as well in engineering yeah. compared to this the mindset that you learn in let's say law or in um, business administration where you are kind of very used to a completely foreseeable deterministic um, environment where you just do your calculation where you do your math. Right. And then you calculate a certain NPV of an idea or a business plan. while well, in reality, you know nothing. You know, there. you of course make certain assumptions about probabilities, but usually reality turns out completely different because technology innovation might take entirely different passes and come up with entirely different things that you could not at all build in your business model and that you could not at all anticipate.
0: Yeah. From my point of view, the cool thing is, and I totally agree with you, yeah, that all this kind of deterministic education thingies will have to die out because you have computers, AI, machine learning whatsoever. You can do this faster, more accurate whatsoever than you could ever do. So from my point of view, the real intelligence of humans should be in designing the experiments in order to validate those hypotheses. Yeah. And this is what you call more closer to engineering type of thinking.
1: And if you actually look, you know, where innovation has been coming from, just look at the Silicon Valley companies, you know, that we all um, so admire, usually it is engineers at the helm, with a very, very few exceptions. You know, um, look at the founders of Google, who were really kind of the best experts in search technology at that point, you know, pursuing their PhDs in Stanford, or look at Bill Gates, you know, who was kind of sleeping in the computer room of Harvard, or uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who was hacking the night through um, to build Facebook, or, or Elon Musk, you know, um, these are kind of really, really hardcore engineers. And they were driven by using kind of the newest and, and and best technology available, playing around with that and coming up with totally surprising ideas, you know, partially kind of beyond their own uh, wildest dreams and ideas of, of, of what b- would be possible. And, you know, the, the founding story of Apple, you know, the, the two genius of Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs being combined, there was very, very, very deep engineering knowledge, the very best engineering knowledge um, at the founding moments of these, of these companies involved. The same is true for the German automotive industry. You know, they always had this culture of car guys making it to the helm, people who really knew everything that you could know about cars, how they are built, all the stuff that has already been tried and the stuff that has not been tried yet. And that is how you build the best cars in the world. And I think we should really come back to that. You know, if you want to build the most innovative companies in the world you need people at the helm, really deeply know and care about the underlying technologies and that kind of product work- vertical. You can't just hire a marketing person, you know, give him the title of head of innovation and hope that suddenly the company is going to be super innovative. <laughs> That's never going to happen.
0: Yeah, right. I-, I personally like if you have in the management team... Somebody who really knows the technology and then somebody who really is immersed into the customer. So who is really empathetic and really can think from the customer point of view and in his mindset and better than the customer can even understand himself. And if you then combine those two worlds, then I think you can have a really cool business. So last question for today, Felix. What do you think are the top innovations things that many corporates and maybe other scale up startups are doing that will put their long term business viability at
1: risk? Usually it's very different for a startup than for a big corporate. For the startup, it's usually getting defocused and um, shying away from digging through the hard part. And I think perhaps a little bit the thing about the lean startup has been really misleading and has really led to too few startups you know being really innovative because people feel like it should be super easy yeah if there is some real barrier coming up and innovation is usually always coming with some hard things to solve and some real barrier and you have to go back and you have to reiterate and the real technical innovation is usually not coming from stuff that you read in the lean startup uh, book so I would really encourage founders you know to to not give up that easily and to encourage more researchers who are really working on the latest and greatest in science and engineering you know, to, to dare making that leap of faith and trying to build a new and an entirely innovative product out of their research. Don't get me wrong, like the MyMusely founder or uh, Rocket Internet founders you know, that just try to come from kind of a customer need and are not kind of building something that I perceive as really innovative. And I think in Germany, we have a very strong engineering culture and we have a lot to build um, up on here. We, We talked about some of these kind of really big and looked up on Silicon Valley companies. Usually all of them had to solve something that was kind of a real engineering problem that needed to be solved at their foundation and then had something kind of great and hard to copy to build up on from that starting moment. So that's kind of, Thinking about startups, thinking about the big corporates, I think it's exactly um, the other way around. They usually do a lot of very cool and, and deep research in many different areas, but it's very difficult for them to tie the different knots together and bring kind of the right mindset in on you know, how to combine these different things and, and build a really innovative product out of that. Kind of people working too unconnected on kind of very tiny fractions of the big big thing. You know, coming back to what we discussed in the beginning, everyone tied into their tiny little box. And there they are doing amazing engineering and really deep work. But it's very difficult to open the horizon of people, encourage them, provide the right kind of team setting and environment where things from very different angles and different parts of the company can be combined so that a really innovative product uh, can be made. So very different recommendations I would actually have for startup founders compared to the big corporates because the environments are so different Yeah, and the problems. Sounds very
0: reasonable, Felix. So thank you for this podcast interview and I wish you and others all the best and I'm very, very sure that we will hear from you more often.
1: Thanks a lot, Martin. It was a pleasure.